0: Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. A friend of mine recently told me that he's feeling really worn out by the burden of being a witness for Jesus in our current cultural moment. His work colleagues are atheists they're super negative even derogatory about his faith one of his closest friends has expressly said to him don't try to convert me how can he be a witness to Jesus in this context our world is increasingly intolerant toward our faith at the worst you know extreme of this Christianity is seen as something that's harmful even predatory And where you find people who are tolerant and even have a mild interest and some kind of faith and concept of God, we find that increasingly God is considered to be a retired old man living out of sight upstairs in the attic somewhere, letting us get on with our lives down here, ready to take us away at the end of this life if we've said the right things and perhaps done the right things. To N.T. Wright, this view of God as a retired man in the attic is the result of relegating religion to the private sphere it's what happens when there's an increasing push for our religion and our faith to only affect us we have a cultural narrative happening at the moment that says you can't impose your beliefs on anybody else that's harmful and it's just downright wrong in our cultural world and what's happened is the religion is just playing its part over here in the private world with nothing to say about political discourse, nothing to contribute to social issues or debate. It's just private. And when we agree with that, not just because we're actually saying it out loud, but just because we start to live in fear of the public ridicule and shame, when we give up hope, for God-driven change in our world, our religion turns inward. This just becomes about self-discovery. What we do together just becomes about how, how we can, you know, become more like Jesus for the sake of our, you know, the betterment of our, our worlds and, and whoever else is interested. But it becomes inward rather than, it becomes a story of self-discovery rather than a story of redemption, rather than the story where God is the one. Who has to step in and rescue the world rather than the story of where he is actively at work in the world right now, asking us, inviting us to partake, to participate? So, today it's my hope that we'll all find ourselves with a renewed sense of hope that God is active in the world and he is intimately connected and interested with what is going on, both in the public sphere as well as the private. It's for both. that today we'll leave with a deeper level of trust in God's goodness, which I believe really is the start, the source of true spiritual nourishment, not some kind of counterfeit. Because as the world pushes religion into the private sphere, it hasn't necessarily given up its need for spirituality. It's looking somewhere for something. And we're going to explore today what, what what it looks like and then what the Bible says about that true spiritual nourishment. It's going to get a little bit uncomfortable in here. We're going to press into just some uncomfortable truths about our cultural narrative that maybe, if you're like me, have started to feel like they make sense. We're going to examine today the ways that they don't make sense when looked at through the lens of what Jesus lived and preached and taught and what God says. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I just have here a basket of fish and Loaves, and we're all hungry, God, and maybe we don't even realize it, but we're all hungry for something nourishing, something in our spiritual lives that will quench our never ending thirst. And so, just pray that you'd bless this offering, that you'd just move through whatever words I speak today, that your Holy Spirit would be moving in our hearts. We just invite you in right now to multiply and expand what it is that we're hoping you'll do. We just want to give it to you to give you permission to sustain us, to nourish us in ways we don't even understand that we need. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So with Christian thoughts sidelined and forced into private spheres, what's moving in to take its place is a form of Gnosticism, the worship of self. It's not a new idea. It's been around for a while. But it proposes that what matters most about being human is a secret inner core or, if you will, a real self, which needs to be identified and allowed to express itself. Our modern cultural identity narrative says that in order to be a complete person, you've got to be true to yourself. Have you heard that one? Our society is telling us that you can't be an authentic person unless you look into your heart and decide what you want to do, what you want to be and then assert your individual interests over and against what anybody else says. It's the only heroic narrative left, according to Timothy Keller. He says it's in every movie, every sitcom. You'll find it in all the plots of the the novels you read. We live in what Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity, where emotions rule And it's come out of what N.T. Wright calls the broken signpost of spirituality. The identity narrative is part of a larger story that modern society largely believes in. And if we're not careful, it can start to make sense to us as well where the most important thing about being a good human, the the way to be a good, is to look into your heart and at your deepest dreams and then fulfill them. But ancient philosophers never thought like that. It's been a while that this idea has been around. It's been journeying with us since about the second and third century until the, the current form of expressive individualism. But the ancient philosophers, Greeks, Romans, they didn't think like this. To them, the feelings and passions were connected to the body, while the mind, your reason and will, were connected to your soul. And basically they believed that if you wanted to be a good person, you had to stifle your emotions, you had to squelch down your feelings and have what, they, what is literally your mind ruling over your matter, your body. Modern thought has reversed that completely and now it's your feelings. The reason why I bring up this ancient modern you know, swinging from one side to the other is because I really want to emphasise that human thought and tradition has always just pitted the mind against the emotions. But the biblical understanding of the self, starting with this concept of the heart, is completely different. It's not somewhere in the middle. It's not taking a little bit of this side and a little bit of that side. It's totally unique from human thought. In fact, it's off the charts different. You can't even add another column here and say the biblical one and show how it's different. It's really quite distinct. The biblical understanding of the heart is that it's not the seat of the emotions, as in the ancient way of understanding it, but the heart is the seat of what you trust the most, what you're committed to the most. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs 3. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be, Matthew 6. What we're talking about when we talk about the heart is not feelings or thoughts, neither this mind soul bit or this emotions bit. It's the things you most trust in. It's the things you're hoping and longing for. It's whatever is capturing your imagination. It's the things that you're facing most frequently. It's whatever's at the center of your attention. It's reflected in your main commitments. What's occupying the majority of your time And it's these things that will then affect your feelings and thoughts. And so the heart is the seat of the self, the seat of your mind and your emotions. And in response to our dominant cultural narrative that says that you be you and trust in yourself and reflect that, Jesus offers us something so much richer, so much more stable when you really analyse it as well. He says what you really are is basically what you love the most. It isn't just an emotional love, by the way. We're talking about this. It's not even a belief. It's, it's what your heart trusts the most is who you really are. You are what you think. No, no, no. You are what you feel. No, no, no. You are what you worship. That's what's going to form you. That's what's going to shape you. That's the real you. And if it's not God, it's something else. And that's what you'll find. You'll find little imitations of that in your feelings and your thought life. But what it really is, how you can start to shift it, is by shifting what it is that you're paying most attention to, what you're worshipping. But you can say, I love God. I trust God. And then you spend most of your time and energy thinking about your career and your progression. You can say, yeah, yeah, I trust Jesus for my salvation. Yep. I'm a believer. Like, and honestly, truly believe that. No doubt, no question. Have like an honest belief and faith in that. And yet, what you spend most of your time on, thinking about, worrying about, focusing on is your career. Because what your heart is really trusting then is your career for your security, it's trusting in your work, your job, for your family's financial freedom. You're even maybe finding a sense of worth and value. Your sense of self is wrapped up in your job title and your career. So how can we move from a place of this head belief where you can acknowledge, you know, this abstract truth about Jesus, about God, about his goodness? How can you move from a place of being able to acknowledge Jesus with your mind to a place where our hearts are truly fixated on him? where his commands dominate our mind and attention more than Netflix and Instagram. How can we move to a place where our most automatic thought when faced with a stressful situation is to remind ourselves just to remember and dwell in the truth that Jesus has spoken to us about who we are, not just as kind of a oh this thing has happened let's go and remember let's no no automatic like as in it just happens like you start to you you stop to even notice the time it takes. To, to respond in a peaceful, loving way? How can it become so habitual, so automatic? Well, for abstract head knowledge to become real in that way, it has to be connected to a sensory experience. That's how we take what's up here into here for it to become truly real and start to form automatic habits in us. Timothy Keller tells a story about one of his relatives who used to never wear his seatbelt when he was alone in the car, just never did, never wore a seatbelt. I know it sounds really weird to us really, but this is an American context. I don't know, they do things different. So he never wore his seatbelt and every time he'd get in the car with Tim, Tim would be like, put your seatbelt on. He'd nag and nag and nag and it would take quite a while and refusing to go anywhere until he put his seatbelt on. Anyway, years and years go by and one day his Family member just sits in the car and immediately buckles up. And Tim goes, hang on, you just did it straight away. What changed? And he really prodded him. What What made the change? Well, how come you just did that right away without me nagging you? And it turns out that his relative had a week before just been to see a friend in the hospital. who had been in a car accident, hadn't been wearing a seatbelt, had gone through the windshield, And had 200 stitches. And Tim said, but didn't you know that when a car stops suddenly and you're not wearing a seatbelt, you go through the windscreen? Didn't you know that? And his relative said, yeah, I knew that. See, he had this head knowledge and it wasn't until he had this visceral, raw sensory experience that it became something real and actually brought real change to his life and his habits. If you want real change in your life, we need to start connecting our head knowledge with sensory experiences so that it doesn't just become stay as a belief. We're not just being you know, moved around by our unwieldy emotions, but that we actually are operating out of genuine, true trust in God and what he's said about us. Spiritual disciplines give us sensory experiences and these help to connect those abstract beliefs about God's goodness to an embodied experience of his grace. So, for example, by observing a Sabbath once a week, you actually have a physical experience of God's grace because it's one one day of rest and he still can provide for us and bless us. We don't have to make it all work ourselves it's a physical reminder, it's a physical experience of his grace that we, are, we, we haven't done anything to deserve. It's just an unmerited gift. Fasting connects us, connects our hunger, our physical experience of hunger can connect us to the head knowledge we have that Jesus came and he suffered. And then all of those abstract ideas that we can throw around saying, you know that God is intimately concerned about your life, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you start to experience it physically, like when you connect that hunger pang from your fasting with the idea that Jesus also felt this and suffered, it starts to become real. This is why early church leaders considered spiritual disciplines and practices to be the trellis. The trellis is what supports a healthy vine. It's what lifts the vine up off the ground so that it's not attacked by whatever lives on the... uh, Look, I'm not a farmer, okay? I just know that it helps the vine produce fruit and they're widely used uh, in helping vines grow healthily. And what I really do actually love about it, I know enough about it to know this, that you don't just want to keep the vine up and off the ground and help it be healthy. You actually want to start to train the branches how they go. Gardeners want the branches to go in a certain direction and the trellis helps to train that. And I love that idea because... We talk a little bit in our church Christian tradition about being pruned. Nobody really likes the idea that Jesus is going to come along and prune us. But if we're living, training our lives along the trellis, there's less pruning involved. I love that. (laughs) So there's good things about it too. And this image, I love this. You'll see on the left here this healthy, like fruit-producing vine. It's quite a mature vine. And you can kind of see the wires of the trellis, but they don't stand out as much. The vine's kind of growing in around it. But when you see this really little young vine, you can really quite clearly see the trellis. The trellis is not meant to become the dominant thing about our spiritual life. When spiritual disciplines and habits do that, it becomes ritualistic, And this is where we get the idea, the perception that religion is just stuffy. It's about life. It's about supporting something that is living. And Jesus is the true vine. He says that in John 15, verse 1. We're going to read part of that together now, but we're going to read from verse 5. I am the branch, you are the branch. I'm going to get this right. I got it wrong in the first service as well. We've got to get this right. It's really important. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The living God is looking to make his home, just as Jesus promised, not just with us, the way that he was with the Israelites in their temple, but in us, actually in us. We are the branches extending out into the world, brought to life by God's Spirit. Earlier in verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples, you are already clean, which is actually the second time he says it to them during their Passover meal where all of these conversations are taking place. It's key for us to hear that today. You're already clean. Abiding in the vine, bearing fruit, is not what makes you clean. Being clean... Is what allows you to abide in the vine. The cleansing Jesus bought for us with the cross is not for our own sake. It's not for our own sake. Jesus did not die just so that we can one day leave this world and go to be with Him. It's the other way around. We are cleansed so that the glorious divine presence, God's very own self in person of the Spirit, can come and dwell with us so that we can become little temples hosting his presence so that we can abide in the vine so that through us he can produce fruit now i just want to point out that although this is incredibly individual we're talking about the god who can't be contained even by the highest of heavens right which we don't really know the extent of yet coming to dwell in you in your very individual self, it's highly personal. Everybody has their own unique personal connection to God. Now, it sounds a little bit to me like, well, actually, it's not just to me, but a lot of like this interest in the individual has come throughout history from Christian thought. It's just swinging a little bit too far this way. Let's bring it back a bit because even though Jesus is intensely interested in a personal connection with each and every one of us, In the following verses, he makes it abundantly clear that this is not just for us. It's not for our sake. It's not for us alone. He says in John 15, verses 9 to 14, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Here Jesus is taking the vine metaphor and painting a more literal picture for us. Do you want to remain in the vine? then obey my commands. What were my commands again? Love each other. In the same way that I have loved you, lay down your life for one another. It's uh, it's sacrificial. This is self-sacrificing love. And it flies completely in the face of our modern narrative. That is that the self is what's all important. At the expense of anything else, you must be true to yourself. Jesus. Is saying something completely countercultural to our modern narrative. Mark Sayes has an eloquent quote that really sums this up to me. He says, To be shaped by grace in this modern culture of self, the most countercultural act that you can commit is to break our culture's only taboo. You've got to commit self disobedience. To acknowledge that authority does not lie with us. That's the power of that act. We acknowledge that we don't have, ultimately, we have actually no autonomy over anything. <laughs> We've got to stop pretending we do. <laughs> to admit that we are broken. Not something really we like to say these days. To admit that we are rebellious. Oh, that one's even more uncomfortable to say out loud. We are rebellious against God and his rule. We need to admit that Christ is ruler and to abandon our rule and instead collapse into his arms of grace and dig deep, deep roots into his love. See, you cannot produce fruit, kingdom fruit, the one that brings life and joy, unless you abide in him. And you cannot abide in him unless you obey his command to love each other as he's loved us. And you cannot obey that command if you are not being countercultural to today's narrative and committing self-disobedience, daily denying yourself. And if you aren't denying your own self, then you aren't living in the fullness that God has for you. Now, I really believe that if we don't have a solid picture or foundation, a solid belief that's gone from, travelled from the head knowledge and become heart knowledge, if we don't have that belief that God is good to us, to our families, to the people we love, it is virtually impossible to deny yourself. It becomes really unstable to try to live in a way that puts you last even at the risk of putting your family, the ones entrusted to your care, the ones you love the most last, if you don't believe that God is going to honour all of the promises, all of the truths about his goodness, about his provision, about his faithfulness. That's a really hard thing to do, even in the best of times. So what we need to move from the worship of self to worshipping God, we need to move into deeper realms of trusting God. And I believe this is a lifelong journey. We can all trust God more. There's something in all of us that is wanting to reveal that we're still trusting in some false idea that was going to provide for us in some way. He's wanting to today take us all into a deeper place of trust. Remember back to verse 7, we read it earlier, where Jesus said, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. How many of us here today have asked for something we really wanted and we were met with silence? Or well, you've asked for something and it's been a flat out no. But then how many of us truly die to ourselves every single moment of every single day? I can't raise my hand to that. How many of us commit self-disobedience and deny ourselves and what we want every moment of every day? How many of us love other people, even complete strangers, in a way that will disadvantage us, that ultimately puts us you know, at the raw end of the deal by today's economic and social standards, how many of us love in a way that disadvantages us? How many of us daily love in a way that inconveniences us? How many of us open ourselves up to public ridicule and shame because of who we love and trust in? I can't say that I do all of that yet, but I'm getting hungrier for it. And I really believe that hunger is a really good starting point because I'm hungry not just for this idea of let's love in a way that's super inconvenient. No, I'm hungry for the thirst-quenching spiritual life that is that picture of abiding in Jesus to the point where we love like this because it becomes automatic to us. I'm hungry for what's available to us when we abide in the vine. So I want to ask you right now, and I'm going to close with this, so I'll invite the the worship team back up. Do you have a hard time trusting that God is good? Maybe you kind of have a picture in your head of a good God who can provide for you financially, provide for you and your family, but maybe you have a hard time being generous with your money. Do you desire to love in a, in a sacrificial way laying down your life but you're constantly either forgetting to or there's no time or scope in your life to do it or, or you worry whenever an opportunity presents itself and you see someone on the side of the road in need but you don't stop because you're actually just worried about getting somewhere on time or how inconvenient it's going to be for your kids in the back seat or what effect it's going to have on your life. Do you find that your attention is consumed by things other than his word? Are you find that you're, do you find that your attention is consumed maybe by thoughts about your job or your career or your studies or maybe what you're going to watch next on Netflix? Or maybe most of your time is spent on a device and it's not the Bible app, let's be honest. Is your heart yearning for something more? than what the world can offer you? If this is you, would you stand with me? If you want something more, if you're having a hard time trusting that God's good, would you stand? If you want to be able to love in this unconditional way, overcome whatever it is that's preventing it or stopping it, would you stand? We're going to take a moment now And ask the Holy Spirit to come and reveal to all of us what it is that our hearts are trusting in that's not God and not of God. So take a moment now and ask him just to reveal to you what it is that your heart's attention, trust and hope is in that's not him. when he gives you something, I just want to invite you to confess it out loud. You can do it quietly, but out loud, just confess to him the things that you've been trusting in that aren't him. We really believe that God's wanting to awaken some deep-seated desires and longings in us today because when we're talking about denying yourself, we're not talking about you living in a way that is counter to the way that he designed you and created you. We're talking about a life that is full of just, it's, it's a flourishing life. And I think sometimes we have deep desires and longings that we try to squelch down because we don't know how to fulfill them in any way that is (laughs) life-giving. But this morning, I really do believe he wants to come and he wants to fulfill those desires and longings in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, we want to invite you now to come and fill our hearts fresh. Those places vacated by these things we've just confessed to you would you come and fill us afresh would your holy spirit come and reveal to each one of us who we truly are who we belong to would you come and give us this morning a fresh experience making it real to us that we are your children your beloved and that you are a good good father Let's spend some time in worship because we are what we worship. Let's turn our attention now to Him. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.